Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulia University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we are taking a little bit of a step back to do what I like to call story time about how we got to current treatments in myeloma, you know, where the field has gone from the very beginning to how we got to today, which is where, as we discussed in our prior episode, triplet therapy for the management of our patients as the standard of care. Yeah, this is going to be a great episode because we'll really take you guys through exactly how we got to the triplet regimen, and we'll also give you how we treat those who are not eligible for transplant. Yeah, I think it's a sort of elegant lead-in to that treatment paradigm for transplant ineligible patients, just because, you know, a lot of those older regimens that are out there, we end up still using just in later lines. Yeah, absolutely. So super high-yield show for anyone that's interested in myeloma, and especially for fellows that are going to be treating myeloma, uh, and probably are treating myeloma as we speak. All right, guys, so let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, Jill, how are we feeling today? Doing pretty good, man. I just made some ribs, so belly full, very happy right now. <laughs> like the clock is ticking until you pass out. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, right. I'm that's anticipating right. a food coma while we're recording today. I, I feel like it's yeah. already happening. I can see you kind of, you know, swaying on camera. It's not it's not going too well right now, but you know it was it was delicious. Had some potatoes, some green beans, ribs. It was it was that good old American meal. Yeah, totally worth it. Very totally worth it. That southern charm. What would you guys eat for dinner? I roasted a chicken. Uh, kind of went French style with it. Made some uh, some French lentils. Um, nice little thyme lemon zest rye brine that I did uh, yesterday. So yeah, came out nice. Chef House Wrath. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> I defrosted um a salmon filet from my freezer so uh it sounds a lot less elegant and fun than anything you guys just had and yet the healthiest meal of the three yeah so, by far the bet. healthiest by far <laughs> we have to compromise somewhere right that seems to be the fair trade-off so guys i can speak for myself you know after last week's episode and our discussions about treatment options in multiple myeloma Man, I was able to get back to clinic where I have several myeloma patients in my clinic and just have a new appreciation for the way that we approach them and and how I've been I've been managing them with my attendings. Um, and I just understand it so much better now. And you know, I'm really excited for the show that we've planned today where we talk about some of these really important trials in detail. And I also will say that I feel like in general, I'm not great about knowing all the trial names and the details of the trials. I'm more of a, of a big picture person, but I feel like the story behind how we got to how we treat myeloma is just super interesting. And I still think it's really relevant because, you know, as, as we've been discussing, um, there's no one size fits all in terms of how we approach our patients with myeloma. There are a variety of different drugs and a variety of different regimens that we can pick from, um, but all of it is stemming from you know prior approaches and mixing and matching to get us to where we are today. So I'm I'm amped. 
So Vivek, could you, uh, could you start us off? Like, what are some of the early trials that are really important for, for trainees to know? Yeah, this is really important. So one of the biggest things that we knew in the 60s and 70s is that we used low-dose oral melphalan and prednisone to treat multiple myeloma. At the time in the lab, we knew that the alkylator melphalan had activity against these myeloma cells. And so there was an oral formulation that was low-dose that was used for years and years and years. And really what that low-dose melphalan and prednisone did was it had about a progression-free survival of 15 months and overall survival was very poor. So, so historically, we, we didn't have good treatment options for myeloma. In the 1980s, we then said, hey, what if we just crank up the dose of that melphalan? We have an IV formulation, and let's just give a really high dose of melphalan and see what happens. And what we found was those myeloma cells were fried, but it resulted in bone marrow failure. So in the 80s, we said, well, what if we gave back that patient's stem cells? Because many of these patients in the early trials of high-dose melphalan were dying from infection and had delayed bone marrow recovery. So then we gave them back their stem cells and people survived and started doing much better. And that was when we really started using melphalan and transplant was in the 80s. So really we had low-dose oral melphalan and prednisone, also known as MP, very important as we talk about these trials here in a second. And then we used high doses of melphalan followed by stem cell transplant in the 80s. One of the really interesting things is that Historically, for relapsed refractory disease after that melphalan and prednisone, many of these patients actually just got high-dose steroids, and that was actually quite effective. So high-dose dexamethasone alone was used in many cases and had lots of activity in myeloma. So we knew that myeloma cells are exquisitely sensitive to steroids, hence the reason why all of these triplet regimens that we've talked about, quadruplets, doublets, all of them include that steroid, often dexamethasone, and we knew that historically for a very long time. Now getting into an era when we were at least alive, in the late 90s, thalidomide was found to be pretty effective for relapse and refractory myeloma patients. And remember that when we're introducing new drugs, typically folks who are being recruited for these clinical trials are relapse, refractory, kind of, they've run run out of treatment options. So that's often when you'll see these drugs getting introduced. So thalidomide was starting to be used in this relapse refractory population. Again, because we knew it was anti-angiogenic and we were thinking that angiogenesis was important for the pathogenesis of multiple myeloma. It had previously been off the market altogether because fortunately it was originally used as a, a drug to treat morning sickness, but has horrible teratogenic properties that ended up causing a lot of severe limb hypoplasia in, in the fetus of the women who took this drug. But after it was tried and, and found to be effective, it was approved. And uh, we now have newer generations of this drug, like lenalidomide and pomalidomide, that have come to market with less toxicity, but are a little bit more expensive. As we referenced in our prior episodes, thalidomide is still used around the world, especially in, in European trials and drug combinations, but the newer generation drugs are more common in the U.S. market. Around that same time, uh, bortezomib, which we also know as, as Velcade, became the first proteasome inhibitor to get introduced in this disease. It's The bore in there is because it has a, a boronic acid component. It's a dipeptide that has boronic acid. 
So that's, that's why BOR is typically what we'll abbreviate this drug as in, in combinations like Cybor-D, for example. And uh, those original studies compared Velcade to dexamethasone, again, in that relapse refractory setting. And, and that's what led to these drugs being improved. Got it. So this is all this is all super interesting. So essentially, 60s, well before we were around, there was some thought that perhaps low-dose melphalan that was given orally and, and steroids would help these patients with their with their disease. And then that later evolved to the use of higher doses of melphalan and steroids as well. And then in the 90s, as Dan alluded to, so finally around the time that uh, we were all around, we saw the introduction and use of a drug called thalidomide and later bortezomib, and we were seeing some good outcomes with these drugs as well. Yeah, and I think it's pretty cool how we see the evolution of how drugs get developed in in this path from, from the 1960s to the 90s, looking at, you know, starting with drugs we knew were cytotoxic and seeing which ones work the best on these plasma cells in culture to having some hypotheses like, oh, maybe angiogenesis is really important in myeloma, so let's try a, a drug with anti-angiogenic properties to really trying to select agents rationally, saying that these drugs produce a ton of protein, they produce a ton of immune proteins, so maybe if we mess up that proteasome, that recycling mechanism inside the cells, these cells will just fill with misfolded protein and, and die, and, and certainly that's what we see. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely genius. We went from non-specific to more specific and going along the lines of that. So we, you know, now we're in the nineties, we, we used, we have this option of low dose oral melphalan and prednisone, which was still really the standard of care. Thalidomide and Velcade were used in the relapse refractory setting. So then we said, well, let's march that up front. And the other thing that's important to know in the nineties is that, okay, well, we had this option for low dose oral melphalan and prednisone, but we also used combination standard old dirty cytotoxic chemotherapy. And that was very commonly used. Regimens that you would see and that you might see referenced in these historical trials are things like vincristine, doxorubicin, and dexamethasone. Remember, doxorubicin is also called adriamycin, so it was abbreviated VAD. And that was something that was used. So vincristine, doxorubicin, dexamethasone was a common cytotoxic regimen that was used. And then what researchers did was they said, well, now we're in the 2000s. We have more combinations of drugs available to us. Let's see if we can de-escalate, reduce toxicities, and get the same efficacy. And what we found was Velcade and dexamethasone, thalidomide and dexamethasone, both beat vincristine, doxorubicin, and dexamethasone. So really the targeted agents that Dan was just referring to were more effective than these non-specific chemotherapy agents. And that was really incredible that we de-escalated from these higher doses of standard old chemotherapy to some of these more targeted agents. And really what the reason why we really want to bring this up about the vincristine, the doxorubicin, saying that these were used historically, is you'll see these still have activity in myeloma and they'll be used in that relapsed refractory patient with a combination chemo regimen called VDT-PACE that we'll get to later. But it's just good to know that these standard cytotoxic chemo regimens were used historically. We're going to link some of these trials in our show notes just so you guys can see what that looked like because it's it's pretty important. Now, Vivek, I'm a, as I said, I'm a, I'm a big picture guy. So I think you just mentioned that thalidomide and Velcade were shown to be better. And so this kind of then 
brings up the idea of how we maybe got to imids and proteasome inhibitors in today's combination therapy, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, that we had these doublet regimens. So at the time, doublet was the standard of care, and it was better than cytotoxic chemotherapy. Okay, Vivek, so I'm, I'm totally catching your drift now. And so we are just kind of riding this wave, you know, from the 90s into the 2000s. There was an emergence of a lot of phase two trials that were coming out in the early 2000s, showing that triplet combination. So we previously talked about combining two drugs that were more targeted, but if two is good, as we said last time, well, then maybe more is better. So then they tried three and there was some good data coming out in phase two trials suggesting that this was working. And then they were also testing this in some phase three trials uh, and they were also showing survival benefit, which is awesome. And so that kind of brings us to our present day. Listeners, you'll remember that last week we talked about a really, really, really important trial that really set the stage for how we got to triplet therapy as our standard of care. And that is that SWOG0777 trial that showed that VRD was better than RD. And that kind of led us to, you know, our discussion about how we got to triplet therapies in this day and age. You know, I think that's a fairly elegant segue towards our last section for this episode, which is treatment of older transplant ineligible patients and what what their standard of care is. And remember, this is that early decision point. When you're first meeting a patient who has multiple myeloma, you have to figure out, is this someone who I'm going to try and consolidate with autotransplant and high-dose melphalan, or is it someone who I'm not going to be doing that with? And so if you determine this person is not going to do well with transplant, then that sets them on a whole different path. You know that they're not going to be headed towards a course of high-dose alkylator therapy with high-dose melphalan. So that actually frees you up a little bit to introduce low-dose melphalan because you know you're not going to be exposing their disease to a low dose of something that they're later going to be blasted with in a high dose. You're not worried about generating resistance to that alkylator class of therapies. So in any event, Vivek, could you take us through a little bit how, how we go about treating these folks? Yeah, Dan, that's critically important because for a long time, because in the U.S. we don't use oral melphalan, but they do in Europe, and it really set the stage for the modern trials that we have now for these transplant ineligible patients with the incorporation of daratumumab, that CD38 monoclonal antibody. So just to catch everybody up to speed about how we got to these modern trials, because I was like, why are we using something called DARA-VMP, and why is myeloma filled with all these letters that make no sense? So here's the key. Remember MP, melphalan prednisone, that alkylator, the steroid. What we did was, well, in the late 90s or early 2000s, we had thalidomide, which was that imid drug, and we had Velcade or bortezomib, which was that proteasome inhibitor. And we said, well, let's just do a triplet. Let's do Velcade, melphalan prednisone, proteasome inhibitor, melphalan prednisone against melphalan prednisone, and it worked. VMP then was superior and became an option for a standard of care in older patients who were transplant ineligible. So VMP was an option with Velcade. We also used thalidomide, and we said, well, what about thalidomide melphalan prednisone? And that also worked, and that was great. So we had those two triplet regimens, but the people who got that thalidomide melphalan prednisone had a lot of toxicity. Melphalan, that alkylator, drops your blood counts. Remember, alkylators, hematologic toxicities, really want to drive that home, drops the blood counts. These people had that, and thalidomide caused a lot of neuropathy. 
So we had this newer drug, Revlimid, and we knew it worked really well, had good deep responses. And so in these older patients, we said, well, maybe a doublet is actually better than the triplet if we have a really good drug like Revlimid. And we compared Revlimid, dexamethasone. Remember, Revlimid is a imid. It's the second generation imid. Revlimid, dexamethasone. And we compared that to melphalan, prednisone, and thalidomide, that first generation that we were just talking about with high toxicities. And we found that it was superior. So that really set the stage. We had an imid plus steroid and revlimid dexamethasone as an option. And then we also had velcade, melphalan, prednisone, or VMP as an option. And those are the control arms of the two modern trials that use daratumumab in these older patients who are transplant ineligible. And that's why we wanted to mention them right now. That makes so much sense. And, you know, but also it brings up a great point that if you have something that's going to have less toxicity, why would anybody reach for the one with more toxicity? So as, as you alluded to then, that kind of set the stage for where we are now in, in today's era. And we talked a little bit about quadruplet therapy in our last episode as well. We talked about how, you know, right now the standard in the transplant eligible patients is still to consider triplet therapy, although there are people that are moving toward that camp of doing quadruplet therapy up front. So can we talk a little bit more about what you just said about the use of quadruplet therapy in our transplant elig- in our transplant ineligible patients? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll talk about the trial that got a quadruplet approved for the transplant ineligible patients. And then I'm going to let Dan talk about the trial that led to the triplet with daratumumab get approved for transplant ineligible patients. First, I want to make it very clear. Standard of care for transplant ineligible patients. Think VRD, Velcade, Revlimid, Dexamethasone, or Daratumumab, Revlimid, Dexamethasone. This will make sense in a second. For the triplet VRD, why is that the case? Because of the SWOG trial. 30% of those patients were transplant ineligible. They got eight cycles of VRD followed by RD maintenance. There's an overall survival benefit. So that's the key. You'll see when Dan talks about his trial that got this DARA Revlimid dexamethasone approved, DARA RD, the control arm in that trial was RD, not VRD. And you might be wondering, why did they choose RD as the control arm? Well, One, we didn't have all of the updated analysis from this SWOG trial. And two, we knew that there was high grade three neurotoxicity and GI toxicity in the older patients who got this VRD regimen followed by RD maintenance. So in that trial, they said, well, let's just do DARA-RD versus RD, less toxic, and see if we can get this approval to help these patients. And that's why that trial was there. Now I'm going to talk about the Alcyone trial. This is a trial that every single hematology fellow should look at because it's really important to really interpret clinical trials and understand the nuances. So we're going to link this in our show notes. Everybody read this trial. Everybody look at it and listen closely to what we're saying here at the fellow on call, which really we have have learned from several great mentors. This trial compared daratumumab VMP to VMP because remember, we had Velcade melphalan prednisone the old melphalan prednisone, we added Velcade to it, it worked. And we said, well, what if we add DARA to that? Maybe that monoclonal CD38 antibody, that really targeted agent, doesn't add a lot more toxicity. Maybe this is going to be better for these patients. Maybe it'll drive them into really deep responses and they'll have 
better quality of life, and they'll have longer lifespans without compromising toxicity. And what we found was the three-year overall survival rate was 78%, and that was a 10% improvement from the standard VMP arm in that trial. So 10% improvement in overall survival, and that's a big deal. We've talked about this in several of our prior series. 10% overall survival gain at three years is a huge deal. So 78% of people are still alive at three years. The other thing we looked at was how many of these patients are MRD negative. We talked about how you can use different techniques for this, and this is just saying they have tiny, tiny amounts of disease left over. And we also found a 10% improvement in MRD negativity rates. So that's also huge. 14% of these patients that got DARA-VMP were MRD negative that sustained for greater than one year period. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about one time point of MRD. Those numbers are higher. I'm talking about sustained MRD for a year, 14%. That's a really good number for these patients. So that all sounds great. It sounds amazing. Great overall survival benefit, great MRD negativity. What are the issues? Well, the first thing that you should always ask yourself is when that control arm progressed, what did they get after that? Because we're in an era of myeloma where we have a lot of drug options in the relapse refractory setting. And more importantly, we knew that daratumumab was highly effective in patients in the relapse refractory setting. That's why we wanted to march it up front in this trial. And only 10% of the control arm got daratumumab when they progressed. And that doesn't really tell us if getting everything up front is better than a sequential treatment. And we would know, actually, if it was better if, if more of those patients actually got daratumumab progression. Hard to do. It's, it's, it's a complicated situation with clinical trials, but post-protocol therapy is important, and this trial really highlights that. So as a variation on the theme of the trial we just talked about, there's the MAIA trial, or M-A-I-A, MAIA trial. Another sort of essential trial that everyone should have a look at this compared adding daratumumab to RD versus RD alone, indefinite treatment until progression, which is really the paradigm we're going to be seeing in this, in this treatment group a lot of the time. Similar to the last trial, we saw that this combination, adding daratumumab to RD, improved both progression-free and overall survival and improved that MRD negativity at greater than 12 months, so 11% in the daratumumab RD group versus 2% in the RD alone. And like in the Alcyon trial, the, the Maya trial also only had about 21% of the patients in the control arm seeing daratumumab in the relapsed refractory set. And so, in a way, these trials, they're answering a kind of silly question. Is adding a highly effective myeloma drug to a highly effective regimen better than not adding it? Well, yeah, obviously it's going to be. Of course, you you know you can't just assume. You always do need to try drug combinations, and and you always want to see that there's a, a benefit in in disease response with uh, minimal additional toxicity. But I think the real question, the important question that we need to be answering, is should we be giving this daratumumab up front, or is it just as effective or more effective to wait until a patient? has relapsed refractory disease, and then expose them to the daratumumab afterwards when we know it's still effective. Um, and I think that's a question that, unfortunately, these trials, because of the way they were constructed and because of the small proportion of patients who ended up getting daratumumab after disease relapse, uh, these trials just aren't able to answer that question for us. 
Yeah, Dan, that, that's the toughest thing right now is that it didn't answer that question. And another important thing to note that we didn't mention before, in the Alcyone trial, patients got nine cycles of the quadruplet therapy and then were put on daratumumab maintenance indefinitely. That's not something you'll see in the United States, but something you should know, there was an overall survival benefit that exists. What we do in the United States that you'll see that's approved is this Maya trial, this DARA-RD, and that's indefinite. It's indefinite daratumumab revlimid dexamethasone, and it's that until progression. So then a lot of people might ask, well, why does this matter? Because, you know, okay, yeah, only less people got it, and we don't know the sequence, but it worked, so why does it matter? And interestingly, it can matter, right? When we think about the cost of the drugs, how much time the patient's going to be in an infusion room, all of those things matter, right? When we think about Revlimid dexamethasone, that's an oral regimen. It's different. There's no infusion. So all of those things matter. And the interesting thing is, a lot of people would ask, well, then you couldn't prove an overall survival benefit because if everybody got daratumumab anyway, how, you know, you would never be able to prove overall survival because they would have crossed over. And the interesting thing is, in the relapsed refractory setting, we had a trial where we looked at daratumumab combination therapy versus no daratumumab. And in that control arm, when they progressed, they got daratumumab on the back end, and that still showed an overall survival benefit, which tells us that daratumumab combination therapy changed the trajectory of the disease. And that's why, based on those results that it happened then, it's thought that, yeah, it also makes sense to happen in the upfront setting, in the upfront setting, that the quadruplets with daratumumab will change the trajectory of the disease like it did in the relapse refractory setting, which we proved that even when all those patients got daratumumab after progression, giving it all up front in that relapse refractory setting improved overall survival. That's the Castor trial, which forget about the trial. The bottom line is that's the theory and why a lot of people think quadruplets are good up front and why this idea of the Maya trial makes sense and why people will say, yeah, it's not perfect that they didn't all get daratumumab at progression, but we already showed in Castor that daratumumab can change the trajectory of this disease, so why are we going to assume anything differently? And, you know, I suppose it, it does make sense to a certain extent that pushing disease down further, as long as it's not adding a tremendous amount of toxicity, would have a, a long-term benefit. If you think about cancers in general as diseases that experience clonal evolution or that develop sort of subclones of the tumor cells that could potentially develop new mechanisms of resistance, if you really try and bottleneck and pinch down that population as small as you can up front, then there will be fewer cells around to develop into those clones, potentially. Um, so, you know, it, it's certainly a rational thing to think that this strategy of, of bundling and daratumumab up front would be more effective. But um, as we'd referenced before, you know, we have some data hinting that it might be, but not a lot of definitive data in these specific regimens based on the trials that we have. And, and after all that rambling, just to summarize this transplant ineligible, this DARA-RD is an option, and also VRD is an option. I know we said that there was, there was more toxicity in that subgroup analysis, but again, that was a subgroup analysis. So you'll still see, for the patient that can take it, we will do VRD therapy as standard of care for these transplant ineligible patients. We just wanted you to know why the control arm and the trial that got DARA-RD approved did not include Velcade. And the reason is because of the concern for toxicity for older patients. 
So I think we've definitely come a very long way in how we approach our myeloma patients. And, you know, from what started out initially as very nonspecific chemotherapy, cytotoxic agents, to then realizing that there were more targeted approaches, we were like, okay, less is more. Uh, it's just almost interesting that we're now slowly moving in the other direction. So we got down to two drug combinations that then resulted in three drug combinations. And now we're even talking about four drug combinations. But I think the difference that I'm taking away from this all is that we started, you know, very nonspecific drugs, and now we've become much more specific in our approach and the targets that we're trying to hit with the use of IMIDs and proteasome inhibitors and the new CD, uh, anti-CD38 antibody daratumumab. So really cool just to kind of see the shifting paradigm back from the 60s to the present day. Yeah, and I think, you know, like we'd identified, there's still some questions out there as to what the best combinations are going to be. But I think in the transplant ineligible setting, we do have a lot of good options uh, for upfront therapy. All right, guys. Any final thoughts on any of that? I thought that was a great discussion. Yeah, I thought I thought that was a great discussion. And if things got too technical, check out the show notes. And really, we just wanted to emphasize some important concepts for fellows. But just to, again, a quick summary, if you're taking the boards and you have a transplant ineligible myeloma patient, your options in the U.S. are VRD or DARA-RD. Simple as that. All right, guys. Well, until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.